You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. What are the new guidelines concerning exercise and type 2 diabetes? Joining us to discuss the new American College of Sports Medicine, American Diabetes Association Joint Position Statement on Exercise and Type 2 Diabetes is Professor of Exercise Science at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia, Dr. Sherry Kohlberg. Dr. Kohlberg, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on today. Sherry, good talking to you. Um, you know, both you and I are living with diabetes. We both dedicated our careers uh, to helping people with diabetes. Where are we today when it comes to general exercise regimens that we recommend for our patients with type 2 diabetes? Well, I think that the evidence is overwhelming that exercise is beneficial to, for a lot of reasons, to glycemic control, to reduce cardiovascular risk, and even to prevent myriad complications that are associated with diabetes. However, still just not enough people are out there exercising, and and it's even worse in people with diabetes. Their rate of participation is significantly below the national norms for adults. And you would think in a population like those people with, with diabetes, that those would be the people really out there doing something about their health and trying to preserve it. Tell us about the new American College of Sports Medicine and joint statement with the American Diabetes Association. Well, the statement came out in December 2010 in both uh, diabetes care for the diabetes side of it and also in uh, medicine and science in sports and exercise for the uh, ACSM part. And basically what it is is an evidence-based review of type 2 diabetes, both management and prevention with exercise and physical activity. And this position statement was originally done in the year 2000, and at that time it came out, it was just an ACSM venture. It did not involve the American Diabetes Association. And somehow I volunteered a couple years ago to put together a proposal to update it because I kind of watched literature, especially in diabetes and exercise. And there were just so many studies that had come out that really needed to be included in the statement that I suggested we rewrite it. And I also suggested that we do it jointly with the American Diabetes Association, as I'm a member of both organizations. And we managed to pull that off. Tell us a little bit more about the specific guidelines, like duration, severity of exercise. I'm sure a lot of our listeners uh, could learn from some of these recommendations as well. Right. They're not that different than what the what came out this past year under the standards of care that were published by the American Diabetes Association. I actually had one person ask me, why aren't, why aren't your recommendations different than theirs? I said, well, because they asked me what we were going to put in our position statement, and they went ahead and published that last January, so they were up to date before we even got our stuff out. But what we're recommending in the position statement, again, is evidence-based, so it's based on the research that's been done in this area, We recommend 150 minutes a week of moderate to vigorous aerobic activity with no more than two days lapsing between exercise bouts, mainly because the exercise effect on insulin action starts to decline after a period of time, and usually going more than two or three days is just too much time in between. 
We also recommend resistance training at least two days a week, but preferably three. And one one question that's come up several times is, how are these recommendations different than the federal guidelines that came out in 2008 and even the American College of Sports Medicine and American Heart Association guidelines that came out in 2007? And the big difference for the aerobic exercises that these recommendations for people with type 2 diabetes don't really allow for a lower duration of vigorous exercise. For example, the federal guidelines and ACSM guidelines both agree with 150 minutes a week total of of moderate exercise, but when they allow people to do vigorous, they decrease the amount. For example, a federal is 75 minutes of vigorous or 150 minutes of moderate, but the evidence really suggested that most people with type 2 diabetes do not have a sufficient aerobic capacity to undertake sustained vigorous activity for even 75 minutes. Can you define uh, moderate versus vigorous? Does that include our heart rate? It, it really has to do with MET levels, and that gets a lot more complicated than most people want to worry about. Most of the time when you're doing a moderate activity, you can do that activity and talk at the same time. You can have a conversation, you're walking, you're walking and talking, you're good. When you do a vigorous activity, you're more likely to get to the point where your breathing may become more labored, where you feel like you're gasping for breath, or you just can't really carry on. If you get to the point where you can't carry on a conversation, the intensity is harder than what you need to get sufficient aerobic training. Well, people have said that nothing can stop me from talking too much, so um, uh, I'll have to get my own definitions. Now, I wanted to ask you about the resistance training. I mean, uh, what is that? The resistance training really is any kind of resistance. It can be weights. So it can be traditionally you go into a weight room, you use machines, or you, use, you can use handheld things, dumbbells, barbells. You can use resistance training bands. They use all sorts of those sorts of things in Pilates and other activities where you're just there's some kind of resistance to moving through a range of motion. You can even lift up household items. I mean, I suggest this to people who don't want to join the gym. You can you can pick up five-pound bags of flour. You can use two-liter bottles, gallons of water. I've seen pictures of people, you know, typically older folks lifting cans of Campbell's soup and other types of cans. And I think, you know, obviously everybody has to go come to their own individual goals. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman, and I'm speaking with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Sherry Kohlberg. We're discussing the new guidelines for exercise and type 2 diabetes. Well, let's talk about probably the best way to go is, is combining aerobic and resistance training, and maybe you can define a, a typical workout that you would recommend to a typical type 2 diabetic. When we looked at the evidence, most of the studies that had looked at combined training, unfortunately, up till about December when the position statement came out, those had, when they combined it, the group that did both aerobic and resistance did more exercise, so it really wasn't isocaloric. It wasn't directly uh, comparable, but there was a study that came out in December, finally, that had people who did the combined training do a little bit less of each one, so it ended up being equivalent to doing just aerobic or just resistance. And those results were very encouraging because they showed that you you really can get greater benefits in terms of glycemic control and so forth from combining the types of exercise. It doesn't mean you have to do it all at once. I think the best idea is to approach it that you're going to try to do aerobic exercise a certain amount per week. It can still be that goal of 150 minutes. 
And then you add in resistance training on two or three days, and that can be anything from resistance bands up to heavy training. Now, they did show that people who had done supervised training in a gym and then started doing it at home had a little bit harder time maintaining that same improvement in their blood sugars, but it was still adequate for maintaining strength and muscle mass. And really, when it comes down to it, what you're trying to do is prevent loss of muscle mass with aging. We only have one main place to store all those carbs that we eat when we eat them, and that's in skeletal muscle. And if you don't ever use that up with exercise, you have nowhere to put the carbs when you eat more. Now, what about some of these uh, alternative exercises? You know, I know people love yoga. They love Tai Chi. I know Zumba dancing is a big deal. What, what, What kind of recommendations do you have there? Well, based on the evidence, we couldn't recommend doing flexibility training alone, such as yoga, in as a substitute for aerobic or resistance. However, there is evidence out there that doing flexibility training, balance training, like you get with Tai Chi and even with doing uh, Zumba and other types of dance, that that's very beneficial because one of the problems with aging and not just with diabetes but aging in general is an increased falls risk. We did do one pilot study on balance training where we just had people train three days a week doing some very simple balance training and after six weeks, their falls risk was reduced dramatically, and that was in the people who had type 2 diabetes. In closing, how would you advise uh, the physicians and nurse practitioners and everyone listening to this show on how to prescribe exercise for their patients with type 2 diabetes? I think when it comes to prescribing exercise, a, a lot of doctors are very cautious because of the comorbidities that a lot of their patients with type 2 diabetes have. One of the things that we've really loosened up in this position statement is the requirement that people have exercise stress tests prior to doing any kind of activity. I think that's really a barrier to most people participating. And the evidence suggests that the majority of people can engage in activities like brisk walking without even getting physician approval. So, you know, let them go do their walking. If they don't have any symptoms, don't worry about it. But if you suspect they have any problems, when you're going through the visit, then I would say go ahead and just follow up on those. But otherwise, I wouldn't use it as a reason to tell them to not exercise. And maybe start with simply increasing daily movement. We do talk about that in the position statement, how important that is. It can be unstructured activity during the day. It can be taking wearing a pedometer and just measuring how many steps you do, how much time you spend standing as opposed to sitting. Anything is better than nothing. And I think the best way of moving into doing more vigorous activity is to start with intervals where you do a little bit something a little bit faster. And then finally, I think what's really important in terms of motivation and changing the behaviors that people have that keep them from exercising is, is providing them with enough knowledge that they feel like they can go out and do it. If they've got a comorbidity, just tell them, hey, if you get exertional angina, here's what you need to do if you start feeling any chest pressure or or discomfort during exercise. Also, if there's any way to give them a frequent touch, maybe that's just a follow-up phone call from time to time, that, that really helps people. And try to give them an actual exercise prescription as best you can, even if saying, you know, aim for 20 minutes a day. Give them a list of alternate activities that still can be part of their regimen. It doesn't have to just be one thing. And then encourage them to go out and look in the community at things that they can get involved in that are physically active because a lot of people need that social aspect to keep doing it. 
That's that's great. I'd like to thank our guest, Professor of Exercise Science at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia, Dr. Sherry Kohlberg. Dr. Kohlberg, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. In last week's class, we talked about how diabetes affects the whole person, and we left off with an important question. Are we looking at every part of diabetes? Uh, To help us answer this question, I've invited one of my colleagues as a guest speaker, Dr. Jackie Brennan, who has been practicing endocrinology for over 25 years. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here to discuss a key issue in diabetes whether or not we're looking at the whole picture. As you know, sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. Weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction are also part of the problem. Specifically, I'd like to talk about GLP-1 and how it impacts multiple systems affected by diabetes. Can anyone tell me more about it? Yes, Jamie, go ahead. GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 are critical to glucose control. Exactly. In a glucose-dependent manner, GLP-1 stimulates the beta cells in the pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibits the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. Anyone know what else it does? What about you, Sam? Yeah, doesn't it help control weight by slowing gastric emptying and inducing a feeling of satiety? Yes, and GLP-1 may also play a role in improving beta cell function, a key to slowing diabetes progression. But why is this so important? It's because at diagnosis, type 2 diabetes patients have already lost 50% of beta cell function. Well, isn't impaired GLP-1 physiology also part of the problem in diabetes? Yes, that's a great point. People with type 2 diabetes may have impaired GLP-1 activity and or impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. This could contribute to problems that develop over time. That's why the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. GLP-1 regulates blood sugar in a glucose-dependent manner, may help control weight, and may improve beta cell function. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about the latest treatment available from Novo Nordisk, please visit glp1analog.com.